Hey y'all, Eves here. Today's episode contains not just one, but two nuggets of history. These are coming from the TDIHC vault, so you'll also hear two hosts. Consider it a double feature. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this day in history class from HowStuffWorks.com and from the desk of Stuff You Missed in History Class. It's the show where we explore the past one day at a time with a quick look at what happened today in history. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson, and it's August 17th. On this day in 1915, Leo Frank was lynched after his death sentence in the murder of Mary Fagan was commuted to life in prison. Mary Fagan was 13, and she worked at the National Pencil Company in Marietta, Georgia. Child labor was still pretty common at this point. At the turn of the 20th century, fewer than 30 states had laws on the books related to child labor. The first federal laws about child labor were passed after this event happened and then were struck down as unconstitutional. It wasn't until the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1838 that minimum ages were set for working. There was 16 for working during school hours and 14 for some after-school jobs and 18 for jobs that were dangerous. On April 26th of 1913, 13-year-old Mary Fagan stopped at the factory to pick up her pay. It was a dollar and 20 cents for one day of work. And Leo Frank was the factory's co-owner and its superintendent, and he said that he paid her and that she left, but she was never seen alive again. A night watchman named Newt Lee found her body early the next morning while he was on his way to the segregated toilet. And when he reported it, he was arrested himself and then held without charges for months. Authorities, though, took Leo Frank to see the body. He seemed nervous and uncomfortable, and he was arrested on April 29th of 1913. This trial was incredibly long. It was infused with racism and anti-Semitism, It was covered in a highly sensationalized way in the press. There was a Black janitor named Jim Conley who became the key witness. He had actually given four different versions of his story in four different affidavits. Each of them contradicted the one before it. But on the stand, as the key witness against Leo Frank, he stuck to his testimony. He said that he had participated in this crime, but that Frank was the killer. Frank was convicted on September 26th of 1913, and Conley was later convicted as an accessory after the fact. Frank was sentenced to death, although after a long legal fight, the governor commuted his sentence to life in prison, and that happened on June 21st of 1915. This act by the governor sparked a huge wave of anti-Semitism in the area. Leo Frank was Jewish, and during the trial, crowds had been standing outside the courthouse chanting things like, hang the Jew. There had been anti-Semitic stereotypes that were part of the testimony in court. And then after his sentence was commuted, there was this huge wave of vandalism and harassment of Jewish homes and businesses. Frank was sent to prison in Milledgeville, Georgia, and there another prisoner cut his throat. While he was still recovering, a vigilante mob showed up at the prison. They took him out of his cell on August 16th of 1915, and they hanged him the next morning. Regardless of the question of guilt... This trial was a clear miscarriage of justice, and his murder, his lynching, meant that in addition to losing his life, he lost the ability to pursue any kind of appeal. And then in 1982, Alonzo Mann, who had worked in the pencil factory, came forward to say that he had seen Jim Conley, that was the star witness against Frank, carrying Fagan's body. He was 83 in 1982 when he made this statement. 
On March 11th of 1986, the Georgia State Board of Pardon and Paroles posthumously pardoned Leo Frank, but it didn't absolve him of guilt. Instead, it acknowledged that the state had failed to protect him from this vigilante mob that lynched him. He had lost the chance to appeal his verdict because he had been murdered. That was part of this pardon also. And pardon also acknowledged that none of the men who were part of this murder were ever brought to justice. Fagan's murder and Frank's trial and lynching sparked the formation or renewal of a couple of organizations in the United States. One was the Anti-Defamation League. The other was the Ku Klux Klan, which resurged in 1915. You can learn more about the lynching of Leo Frank in the August 3rd, 2011 episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class. Thanks to Tari Harrison for her audio skills on all these episodes. You can subscribe to This Day in History Class on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Coming tomorrow, a restrictive rule struck down. Hi, I'm Eves. And welcome to This Day in History Class, a show that uncovers a little bit more about history every day. The day was August 17, 1887. Marcus Mosiah Garvey was born in St. Anne's Bay, Jamaica. Garvey was an orator, journalist, and activist who was a proponent of Black nationalism, Pan-Africanism, and segregation. Garvey was the youngest of 11 children. His dad was a stonemason, and his mother was a servant. As a child, Garvey developed a love for books. He went to school in Jamaica until he was 14 years old, when he left school and eventually moved to Kingston. He became a printer's apprentice, and he also developed speaking, debate, and journalistic skills. While working in Kingston, he became a trade unionist and took part in a printer strike. The strike was unsuccessful, but Garvey became increasingly interested in activism and politics. In the early 1910s, many Jamaican people facing financial hardship were heading to Central and South America for work. Garvey was one of them. In Costa Rica, he wrote about the poor conditions that Black workers were facing. In 1912, after returning to Jamaica briefly, he moved to London. There, he studied law and philosophy at the University of London's Birkbeck College. He also met with Black intellectuals and laborers who described the treatment they faced under colonial rule. And he worked for the Pan-African and Pan-Asian journal called African Times and Orient Review. Booker T. Washington's autobiography, Up From Slavery, influenced his growing racial awareness and his work on race issues. Garvey went back to Jamaica in 1914 with new views on Africa, race, and European colonization. On August 1st of that year, he founded the Universal Negro Improvement and Conservation Association and African Communities League, or the UNIA. The UNIA's motto was One God, One Aim, One Destiny. Garvey wanted to build an agricultural and industrial training school modeled after Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute. But he was not getting the support he needed in Jamaica. So he turned to the United States to get the money and backing he desired. 
By the time Garvey got to New York in 1916, Booker T. Washington had died. Harlem wasn't that receptive of Garvey's speeches in the beginning, but while he initially had a reformist outlook and advocated for racial accommodation, once he got to America, he became more revolutionary. The time was characterized by Black migration, segregation, and racial violence. Through Garvey's speeches and the UNIA's publication called Negro World, the organization's message of private business and industry spread. As he toured the U.S. giving lectures, he urged Black people to be proud of their race and to return to Africa. The UNIA grew rapidly, appealing to Black people who were tired of colonial rule and racial dispossession. He established the Negro Factories Corporation and the Black Star Line, a shipping company. He also launched restaurants, grocery stores, a publishing house, a millinery, laundries, and a hotel. Garvey sought to build a nation state in Africa for certain African Americans. Black people migrating north from the south, as well as black veterans, made up a lot of Garvey's audience. At the 1920 UNIA convention, Garvey issued the Declaration of Rights of the Negro Peoples of the World, which contained a Bill of Rights, declared black equality, and had resolutions on creating independent legal and educational systems. But as the UNIA and Garvey became more popular worldwide, many people opposed them, including W.E.B. Du Bois, A. Philip Randolph, and J. Edgar Hoover and the Bureau of Investigation. Socialist and communist conspiracies were being tossed around. Garvey's radicalism was worrisome to many, and Garvey was a segregationist who met with the Ku Klux Klan as they shared views on the issue of racial separation. Because of debt and mismanagement, the Black Star Line went bankrupt. And in 1922, Garvey was convicted of mail fraud and sentenced to five years in prison. President Calvin Coolidge commuted his sentence under the terms that Garvey would be deported. He returned to Jamaica, picking back up with his UNIA efforts and getting involved in local politics. His movement continued in the United States, but the organization struggled to gain ground in Jamaica and branches in the U.S. began to break apart. In 1935, Garvey moved to London, and he continued to write and travel to conventions. He also established the School of African Philosophy in Toronto, but he could not find the success he did in the U.S. He died in London in 1940 from complications of stroke, never having been to Africa. Though his legacy is controversial for his advocacy of separatism and Black nationalism, Garvey is also celebrated for his focus on Black freedom and pride. I'm Eve Jeffcoat, and hopefully you know a little more about history today than you did yesterday. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at T-D-I-H-C Podcast. Come back tomorrow for another tidbit from history. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.